HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to A Taste of the Past on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Linda Palaccio, and I'll be your host for this half hour as we explore another topic in culinary history. And today, we are brought to you by Fairway, like no other market. And we invite you to call in to Heritage Radio Network at 718-497-2128. Well, today on Taste of the Past, I am very pleased to have with me a friend and colleague, Kathy Kaufman. Hi, Linda. Thanks for having me. Good to have you here. She's Kathy's a professional chef and a food writer, well, a culinary historian. And uh, Kathy has written on um, several different periods, but mostly ancient periods, I think would say, is, is your specialty, right? Uh, I've certainly spent a lot of time <laughs> digging around in the dusty archives. And not only writing, but Kathy has recreated dinners from some of these old texts, ancient texts, and, and put on full dinners that have been uh, quite successful, I might add. But we're having her here today. She is the author of Cooking in Ancient Civilization. Uh, Cooking in Ancient Civilizations. Yes, yes, four civilizations. Yes, four civilizations. <laughs> Many of them. Um, which is a publication in the Greenwood Press's Daily Life Through History series. And today I chose to have her talk about the very beginning, the Mesopotamians, the cradle of civilization. Exactly. All right, and what did they eat? And basically we can say, why do we care? Historians have paid so much attention to this period. Well, they've paid a lot of attention to the period because it's the time when we have our first writing. It is the shift from prehistory to history, uh, the cuneiform tablets that uh, I base a lot of my recipes on. And no, I don't read cuneiform. They have been translated. I only wish I could. And we'll talk about uh, those tablets in, in more detail later. Ex- exactly. Yeah. But it, it's the time where we can first really start to read and understand what people were thinking and try and get into their heads because they're writing. And how does that really, I, I mean, I was trying to kind of grasp a, an idea of why the cooking of Mesopotamia and and their food culture really has such an impact on today's culture, if we could narrow that down. Well, it certainly does on a couple of different levels. First, the climate in Mesopotamia. It has changed a little bit since 
five, four thousand BC when the area was uh, first uh, brought into the agricultural realm rather than hunting and gathering. But it's still got a lot of the same uh, ingredients that are very important. And what you have always seen in Mesopotamia is it's a mixture of ethnicities. It's not just one ethnicity. I mean, we see it today in you know the politics of Iraq. Mesopotamia is essentially Iraq, and we know that there are different cultural influences there. And the same thing was true in ancient times. There were Sumerians, Babylonians, uh, Hittites, uh, Persians at one point, uh, all sorts of different influences coming in. And that's what makes the cooking of Mesopotamia so interesting, too. I mean, it's really... Uh, yeah. and, and not only that, but um, as you briefly alluded to, which we will get to in further detail, too, is agriculture because what give us a timeline what are we ta- what are we really talking about here in terms of how far back are we going of things that we know were happening 3000 BC or we go back into prehistory for the dawn of agriculture uh, the so-called neolithic revolution the new stone age is basically when people started shifting from hunting and gathering to more settled communities with agriculture and farming. Uh, Wheat and barley were two of the most important products in the ancient Near East, and they continue to be very important there uh, today. Um, And it's not really until about 3000 B.C., that we get our first writing in Mesopotamia. And it's another 1,300 years or so before we get our first culinary writing, but we do get that around 1750 B.C. And to just to uh, reference this to any other culture that we know, we don't have any culinary writings that we know of until... Well, we know that they existed in ancient uh, Greece, but many of the texts are lost. We do have some fragments from around 300 to 400 BC, and then the first real cookbook that we have is actually a compilation that starts roughly around uh, you know the beginning of the Christian era and more formally put down around the 5th century AD. So, so we're talking about a, a big gap in time. Well, we'll get into that in more detail. We have to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll find out the details of Mesopotamia here on A Taste of the Past. and you're listening to A Taste of the Past on Heritage Radio Network, brought to you today by Fairway, like no other market. We're talking with Kathy Kaufman about um, the foods of Mesopotamia, or the, actually the Mesopotamians, um, since they are such a, a, a broad range of people, ethnic ethnicities. And Ethnically what diverse, and what they ate, well, a lot of bread, or a lot of grain products. That, yeah, that's really what I wanted to focus on right now, is that 
uh, we find in this era uh, agriculture, which did not exist. We had hunters, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. hunters and gatherers. I mean, they found what was on the ground or they went out and shot their meat. Let's talk about agriculture and grains and how that evolved in, in what we call the cradle of civil, civilization. That's a very interesting story that has a lot of different components to it. Um, it's hard to pinpoint a kind of tipping point in which hunter-gatherers suddenly became agriculturalists, and most people seem to think that this is a process that took place over time, many different places, and we can't really pinpoint a specific time. But what we do know is that around 10,000 BC, there are evidence of uh, places where foodstuffs were stored, particularly grains, and something that you could go off and hunt for a while when the hunting season was good, and then come back to where you had stored various things, and, you know, basically overwinter based on these supplies of grains. Um, Whether they were made into porridges, which seems to be the first use of the grains, Or flatbreads um, happened very early. All we know is by the time people started writing about food, they were talking about rather sophisticated uh, bread recipes in Mesopotamia in one of the palaces uh, that's become an archaeological site in Mari. There were more than 300 molds for different sorts of breads. Hmm. So clearly they were doing some amazingly sophisticated and beautiful uh, breadstuffs, and that was certainly for the elites how you would be eating. Well, and fire. I mean, for so we didn't even go back that far. They had fire. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and that was and that was so important. Oh and well, well, fire is separates us from the, uh, yeah, the fire beast. is a huge, huge issue. Um, and it's thought actually there's an interesting uh, theory that's uh, come out recently from a guy at Harvard that without fire and cooking we never would have been able to evolve our larger brains. So it is fire that makes us human. It's not that humans captured fire. It's that fire and cooking allowed primates to become human. All right. Interesting. Um, so did they have, they really didn't use ovens. They didn't, even then, they didn't really build ovens, or did they oh. use the molds? How, how did they bake the breads? Well, there would have been things essentially like a uh, modern tandoori oven, those clay ovens uh, in the East. They're now called tanours, and there was a very similar name in uh, ancient Babylonian for them. Uh, and you would basically heat the oven very, very hot, slap a thin bread against the wall, and, you know, in about 90 seconds, it would have been cooked through enough on one side and uh, sufficiently done on the other side that you would have this uh, flat bread that would be a little soft on the top, a little crusty on the bottom. It would often get topped with cheese, oils, uh, various sorts of condiments, and that would be a standard part of your uh, daily meal. And cheese. Cheese, of course, would be seasonal. I mean, uh, well, it's seasonal, but keep in mind that cheese is a way of preserving milk. That's right. So, why you would, while you would actually have, you know, milking season during the spring and summer months when the animals were nursing their young, and you would take some of that milk and save it, um, you would turn that into a cheese or a yogurt. Uh, and the you know harder and drier the cheese was using salt and uh, smoking techniques, you could have cheese year-round. It was not necessarily uh, limited to the uh, spring and summer months when fresh milk would have been something that, you know, 
milk the cow in the morning, finish it off because it's going to be sour by the uh, following day in the heat of Mesopotamia. Right, right. And uh, well, that's once again, the geographical location is, is interesting in mm-hmm. what was happening and how agricultural agriculture came to be or or actually farmed uh, harvested crops. Um, talk a little bit about Mesopotamia and the, and the ge- a little geography lesson. Well, a little geography lesson. I, I think we've all learned a lot of geography about Mesopotamia with uh, recent uh, politics. But you've got the Tigris and Euphrates rivers that are going through Mesopotamia. And they are something that, like the Nile in Egypt, would flood every year. As a result, they would moisten the ground and deposit a you know thick layer of silt, and that would enrich the ground, so you would be able to grow grains very, very successfully. And you mentioned um, barley and wheat being the two most stable crops or the, or the important grains. Interestingly, wheat was originally the more popular of the two grains, um, and it makes better bread than barley. It's because of certain proteins that are in the structure of wheat that are not in barley uh, that allow you to have a leavened bread. Uh, But over the centuries, uh, because the uh, Tigris and Euphrates were also depositing uh, a, a salty silt onto the land, Um, wheat started becoming uh, less uh, prominent because wheat requires a more finicky uh, sort of uh, land to grow in. Barley is very tolerant of extremes of heat, extremes of cold, and a salty soil. Uh, So barley actually became the more popular grain in later Mesopotamia. You see lots of references to barley breads. uh, Well, it could be used for a lot of other things, too. uh, (laughs) Barley? Are are, are you thinking about beer, Linda? Oh, it could be. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, it certainly could be. And Mesopotamia was definitely a beer culture. When you think of the climate of Mesopotamia, in the uh, third and second millennium, it was a little hotter than it is now. Hmm. And uh, you really couldn't grow grapes. Grapes were something that were imported from Greece. There, believe it or not, there was a wine trade that goes back to at least the uh, fourth millennium. It, it, shocking to me, but wine was traded actively. Uh, the grape was originally thought to come from an area in northern Iran and spread to uh, Greece. Um, so the wealthy Mesopotamians would be importing grapes either from uh, northern Iran or from Greece and uh, would have wine for uh, their more elite uh, meals. But the average schmo and even the average well-to-do schmo at the palace would be having an awful lot of beer as well. Uh, so barley was coming in handy in both both realms. Bread, as, as bread and uh, it was basically uh, beer was thought of as liquid bread. And <laughs> it's a role that it has played throughout a lot of different societies as being your staple. I liked what how you had explained in your book, and, and I must say Kathy does a, a wonderful job in her book of uh, not only does she have a history of the food in the different ancient civilizations, but she actually has given recipes for some of these older techniques. But what I wanted to mention that I, I liked was how you summed up this whole civilization era that, and, and around the agriculture, because, of, of course, you have grains. As you mentioned, you need a storehouse. Absolutely. And if you 
don't have a storehouse, you're never going to have surpluses. And if you don't, and if you have a storehouse, you need someone to look after it so it need, doesn't get pilfered. Right? You need someone to guard it. So you have to have divisions of labor within the society. There are going to be some people hunting and gathering, some people guarding and cooking. And as you get better and better at having surpluses, you can get people specializing in all sorts of things, you know, including beautiful pottery that uh, goes back for thousands of years, uh, fabulous gold and silver work. I mean, there's some gorgeous, gorgeous uh, drinking cups for the beer that are made out of gold and silver that are crafted to look like various animals. I mean, stuff that we would be very impressed if a silversmith today made it. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's just very stuff. They didn't waste time in front of the video game, I guess. <laughs> I, I, I guess so. You could develop well, other skills. In essence, I mean, if you have storehouses, you have to have someone watching after it. Someone stays around there. So the nomadic tribes become more settled. You Then all of a sudden you have a village, right? And You have a village, and then you get a town, and then you get a walled city, and that's where you have your palaces. Well, we know they ate more than bread, so we're going to mm. take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about more than bread. This is Linda Palaccio. You're listening to A Taste of the Past, and we're talking about the Mesopotamians today and what did they eat here on Heritage Radio Network. And we're sponsored by Fairway, like no other market. And we're talking with Kathy Kaufman, culinary historian, um, and who's also written a book on ancient cooking and ancient civilizations. We were talking about bread, Kathy. Yes. Um, I have a question about bread. I know a lot of breads, porridges were referred to as breads or flat cakes referred to as bread. Any kind of mixture of grain was always referred to as a bread. But then at a certain point comes leavened bread. Uh, Tell me about that. Yes, the great mystery of leavened bread. How did it develop? That That's something that we have theories for. We don't have a definite answer. Um, what seems to be most likely, and it's unclear whether this developed first in Mesopotamia or possibly in Egypt, and it could also be a situation of two independent developments, um, but when you are brewing beer, you get natural yeasts, and those natural yeasts can migrate into a bread dough. And once they migrate into a bread dough, suddenly that mass of dough starts to rise. And if you're hungry enough and want to just, you know, throw it on the uh, hot stone to see what's happening, 
uh, you'll get something. It'll be light and spongy, and if you like it, you'll do it again. Uh, in fact, it's really thought that leavened bread probably was a byproduct of some uh, fermentation process before we had settled cities. Accidental, uh, huh? Completely accidental and probably an experiment that got repeated hundreds and thousands of times before people decided, this is really how we're going to do it. We're going to try and uh, nurture these yeasts and keep them going. Uh, of course, sourdough breads, which uh, that's what we would be talking about here, are things that uh, have nurtured people for so many years. It was, you know, the thing that made San Francisco famous in the well, gold rush. And I, don't, I remember in the 70s, we had pass it along to a friend. You start Absolutely. a sponge and it would sit on your counter for three months and you'd pass a little bit to a friend and you keep would using do, it and using it. You would do that. And <laughs> like a chain letter. Sometimes it would stink. Sometimes oh, yeah. it wouldn't. And when it stank, you uh, got rid of it after a while. <laughs> yeah, uh, That's interesting because um, I, I think a lot of people uh, aren't aware that, uh, you know, that breads were more than just the flat you know, the flatbreads I think of in, in ancient times that they actually had the yeast. Oh, oh they abs- absolutely were. And it's interesting that the beer yeasts maintain their popularity as a way of leavening bread for thousands of years. If you even look at 19th century American cookbooks, they will tell you, use barm. And what's barm? It's a beer yeast. Brewer's yeah, yeast. Yeah, <laughs> the bre- brewer's yeast. So this is something that, you know, we've really only lost in the past 100, 150 years. Well, and you say a lot of things like yeast and, and, and leavened breads. It's hard to pinpoint. We don't have proof. But going up a couple thousand years. Oh, yeah, let's time travel. <laughs> um, Why not? Yeah, right. <laughs> We're, this is all irrelevant to, to today's anyway. But um, so many years, so much happens. But we do have um, the tablets, which are are written in hieroglyphics in in the um, yeah. in cuneiform cuneiform yeah. which uh interesting i have not seen did you actually see one of the tablets that yale has three of the extant i have not seen the tablets in the stone so to yeah. speak but i have seen photographs i of have them i have seen photographs yeah. and i've seen then reprints from the tablets on paper amazing if we can explain to the viewers size uh, the size is, um, you know, fairly small. About uh, the size of a palm, like a, like your hand, yeah, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, I think a little bit bigger than yeah. that, but they're they're not uh, tremendous, uh, and it's almost as if you've got a, some sort of dental tool or something like that. It's it's assumed that they were made from a little metal or wooden. Uh, carved implement that would then impress in the wet clay uh, a triangular shape, which is basically what the cuneiform comes down to. And depending upon how many you group together and what angle you have them at, uh, people who read cuneiform can literally read this stuff. I was amazed at how much material was packed in such a small space. And there, you're talking about, um, you mentioned like 35 recipes in... There are tablets, 35 recipes, and what's interesting is that none of the tablets is complete. They've all got cracks and pieces missing. So while we have 35 recipes, uh, none of them are 100%. So we have to infer what we can into some of the recipes. Uh, certain recipes are really very, uh, very full. There's uh, one of my favorites is for what I call Mesopotamian cocoa vin, 
<laughs> not truly a coq au vin because at the time these tablets were written, chickens were not part of the Mesopotamian diet. They are an eastern bird that would only slowly make their way in, and they would hit Persia sometime around 1000 BC and get into Mesopotamia a few hundred years later. Um, but it's a recipe for something called a kipu, and we don't know what a kipu is other than it's some sort of bird. Uh, and it's made with leeks and mint and some vinegar. So when you put it all together, oh, and it's cooked in a crust. So it's mm. kind of like a deep pot pie. And the instructions go on uh, fairly extensively about I will do this. And then you should take uh, the onions and the leeks and do this. And then we put it on a big Not uh, like the Twitter platter. recipes we know today. No, right? no it, this could not possibly uh, be a Twitter. There's a theory that this recipe is actually uh, a teaching recipe to teach a young priest how to make certain dishes for religious observances. Uh, and when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense that um, when you have relatively limited writings, you've got uh, pharmacological recipes, you know, drug stuff, that's important. You need your religious recipes. That's certainly uh, your which religious is lot, instruction. Is a huge source of our of our culinary history. Absolutely. Um, and information. This, and this one is thought to be uh, a teaching recipe for a young priest. Well, now I learned a brand new word when looking through your chapter, mm -hmm. not the only thing I learned, but it was a very interesting one for me. And that was when when the culinary arts finally, or cooking actually, finally became an art or a craft, and you pinpoint it somewhere around 1900 B.C. as reference to a, there's a title? A, there's a very interesting um, lexicon that comes out around 1900 B.C., actually before the recipe tablets were written. Uh, but what it does is it gives you in two different languages, Arcadian and Sumerian, uh, words uh, identifying culinary preparations. Uh, most of them are for stews or things cooked in liquid. Uh, and obviously, both subcultures were enjoying uh, similar, similar things. Uh, but then there is a word for the embellisher of food. I love that, the yes, embellisher. <laughs> yes, the, the mubanu. Mubanu. I'm not going to say. I'm not going to say that I am pronouncing it correctly, but it is the embellisher. And the idea is that someone who was essentially you know, the chef in a food establishment would present the food beautifully prepared or as beautifully as uh, could be. And we know from religious records that fruits were often offered to the gods. They'd been carved and beautifully presented. Uh, so this might have been one of the um, responsibilities. Well, it describes it so beautifully. Speaking of fruits, tell me, what, what were the fruits that they would have been eating? Well, one of the biggest fruits uh, would have been uh, dates because mm -hmm. the date palm does beautifully in the hot climate. Uh, and it's also extremely nutritious. It has a huge amount of iron. So even if you're not eating a heavy meat diet, which meat was available, primarily sheep, goat, uh, a little less cow, a uh, little less pig, uh, but they were all there in smaller amounts, mm -hmm. um, you could get a lot of iron out of the dates. And that would have been in, an important staple food for Mesopotamians. So they had dates, they had... Um 
Uh, no, we know olives came later. Olives came olives, up from the Levant. or Yes, whatever, olives but, came a little bit later, but they were important. Um, they actually used sesame and sesame oil very much mm. in the cooking, more so than olive oil. Olive oil is like, you know, getting a good Italian extra virgin. It's a little bit of a luxury, not uh, an extensive luxury, but it was still uh, something that was a little more expensive than the sesame oils would have been. And citrus, which we assume is indigenous in that region, in fact, no, is no, not. citrus is not there. Um, the only thing that might have been in Mesopotamia at the time is a cousin of the lemon called the citron, citron. but mm-hmm. it, it, there was no citrus. That came in uh, much later from India. Well... Before we have to go, just kind of describe for us quickly what, let's say, um, as we get um, later on in the in the era of Mesopotamians, what a typical day's um, eating plan would be. Well, the Mesopotamians, uh, and let's talk about someone of some, Babylonians. Let's say go yeah, up to, yeah, as far yeah, as that some, period, some wealth. Um, so they're not uh, subsistence hand to mouth. They'd probably have four meals a day. Uh, a little snack in the morning that would be bread, possibly some cheese, fruit, and importantly, milk, glass of milk in the morning because the cows had just been milked. Uh, there'd be a lunch that would be similar to the morning snack, but a little bit lighter. Uh, then dinner would be much bigger. You would have uh, various uh, pulses, you know, chickpeas, lentils, that sort of thing. Uh, fish, if you are in uh, any of the ancient cities on the Tigris or Euphrates, you basically had free fishing and Certainly could go fish, and, yeah. and get lots of fish. Uh, there might be meat. And the most important thing would have been pastries and honey, things sweetened with honey at the end. And there are actually some amazingly delicious Mesopotamian pastries. We have lists of ingredients that went into them and with a little imagination, you can put it together and make something really fabulous. And you do have recipes in there which are amazing. I just, with all this talk about salt and everybody needing to cut mm-hmm. down on salt, I did want to make reference to what they use to season their foods to make it salty, to make it seasoned, and talk about, just briefly, because we I know we're running out we're, of time. We're running out of time. Um, they could use salt, but salt was primarily used as a preservative, so you would salt fish, other things. And when you salted fish and left them in that hot sun, you would have a controlled fermentation. And that fermentation would result in a liquid that they called siku. Now, if you've ever read anything about Roman dining, you've heard about this thing called garum, which is, depending upon who you talk to, this kind of putrid I have anchovy, tr- I've tried making it. <laughs> anchovy thing. Um, but it, it's really very much like a fish sauce, like a nunk mom or a nam pla. Right. And it, very, very similar in quality. And that's how you would add salt in the same way that Southeast Asians add salt. But then you snuck in a little bit about it wasn't always made from fish, fermented fish. What was the delicacy that they loved and made their preserved salt from I heard the locusts locusts and uh, they could make things from locusts and the interesting thing about the locust is it was a mild hallucinogenic (laughs) so you would if you had your salted locust and put that into 
uh, your food. Well, they'd eat anything. <laughs> they, they would. They would eat anything. Yes. Uh, let, let's make the uh, locusts. Uh, you know, the plagues were upon everyone. That was something that you read about in the Bible, and the Mesopotamians were certainly no different in uh, not taking advantage of these things. Well, clearly, we have much more to talk about. So many other civilizations. So you're just going to have to come back another time, and we'll move our way along the timeline and i just want to thank you for sharing all your information today kathy kaufman and the book is cooking in ancient civilizations i'm linda palaccio this has been a taste of the past on heritage radio network brought to you by fairway like no other market and i'd like to thank our producer lorenzo rajanieri and our engineer nat wiener 